This episode is brought to you by Meow Wolf. Manifest unique family memories at Meow Wolf Denver. Quantum travel is the most comfortable way for Earthers of all ages to explore a playground of imagination. And why visit just once when this immersive experience reshapes every time you enter? C Street is my favorite because C Street has this vibe of like 80s dystopian. There's like slime coming down the walls and there's weird posters. And then of course, the secret club. With the annual Portal Pass, drop by Convergence Station as much as you want for less than the cost of two adult tickets. So if you plan to go twice, it's worth it. Plus, enjoy discounts, special offers, and so much more. Get the annual Portal Pass and spend quality space time with your favorite Earthers today. Learn more at MeowWolf.com. That's MeowWolf.com. Today on CityCast Denver. When Denver water crews went to fix a busted water main over on East Colfax last month, they uncovered some of the old streetcar lines. And predictably, there was another round of, oh, wouldn't it be great if Denver still had that old streetcar? But would it? I'm asking one of the country's leading transit nerds, Jake Berman, who just wrote a book called The Lost Subways of North America, about his deep dive into the shockingly violent history of Denver's old streetcar and why only nostalgia remains. Today is Monday, February 5th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Jake Berman, welcome to CityCast Denver. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so great to talk to you. Um, you wrote this great book about public transit systems across the country, but I want to know what makes Denver's transit past like so interesting. So Denver is interesting, not because of the way that the transit system developed, because Denver followed a pretty standard pattern where there was a streetcar monopoly in the early 20th century that everyone hated. It fell apart. It was taken over by the government. And ultimately, the trains were replaced by buses. And then um, after that, by freeways and then light rail in the uh, 90s and 2000s. Um, what I find really interesting about Denver's transit history is the way that a lot of these things pan out. And for instance, in the 1920s, there was actually martial law declared in Denver um, because of labor strife involving the streetcar system. Wow. OK, we need to talk about that story. How did it start? Yeah. So the reason that all of this got started is that in the early 20th century, public transport was not a public service run by the government the way that RTD is today. Back then, the city government would give a franchise, a, a monopoly to a particular private company to run streetcar routes. And the Denver Tramway Company, which was the primary transport operator in Denver, bribed the city council in 1885 to get a monopoly that was perpetual over the city's public transit network. So as you can expect, a perpetual monopoly is not something that people are particularly big fans of. <laughs> I mean, and, monopolies in general don't sound great except for the company or the people involved in the deal. But you're saying that this this idea was like to go on forever? Forever, yeah. And so there was 20, 30 years worth of litigation. And ultimately, the Colorado Supreme Court had to come in and say that perpetual monopolies are void 
And as a result, the company had to say, well, fine, we're going to compromise and we will agree with the city that we will permanently set the fare at five cents forever in 1910. What happened then is that World War I happened. There was a lot of inflation and the fare was still stuck at five cents. So the city council said, fine, you can raise the fares to six cents, which was enough to keep the workers in their jobs, keep the company solvent. But this led to a bunch of public outrage and a bunch of angry citizens formed something called five cents or nothing fares. So there were angry mobs with thousands of people rioting in the streets and setting trains on fire. This is a wild picture that you're painting, but I think something else I think about is this is so long ago and the way that we look at public transit now is is very different, I think, or at least the way that we use it. Can you set the scene for why people were so invested? Yeah. So this was just the way that you got around. And you can see the way that cities used to be built if you would go to a place like Leadville, where the entire city of Leadville is pretty much walkable from the old train station. The whole thing is very compact. The lots are small. You'll have a shop on the first floor and apartments or offices above. There's not a whole lot of parking compared to what you have today. And you might have one space per home as opposed to like two or three, like a standard suburban house these days. And things were built smaller, not because it was the fashion or whatever, but it was just people had to live within walking distance of everything in daily life. So before the Ford Model T became universal, people really only got around on foot or by train. So fare hikes and things like that were really good reasons for people to get mad about it. Uh, the same way that, let's say, you know, gas prices these days or um, electric rates or water rates, things like that. Like they really anger people because there's just no way to have daily life without it. That's a good way to put it, too, I think, within the context of a utility, because now, you know, we're we're in a more car dependent. I mean, Denver is a car dependent city. Oh, yeah. This is a constant conversation. But the way you're you're explaining it at this point in time, it was it was a utility like anything else. Folks relied on it as part of their daily lives. Let's talk about the after the I guess after sort of the brawl. What what happened? So what happens is the police commissioner is running for mayor and he says, no, we will not stand by this. The fare has to be five cents. And the company says, look, we cannot run trains with a five cent fare. We can't. The inflation has made it not possible anymore. So if the fare stays five cents, we're going to start laying off workers. And the predictable thing happens where the company says we they start laying off workers because they can't afford to run trains. The workers decide to go on strike. And then the company hires a bunch of mercenaries from California, led by a guy named Blackjack Jerome. Yes, that's his real name, <laughs> to come out and run the trains during the strike. So this, the, these strike breakers were a bunch of California college students and laid off streetcar operators who were treated basically like outside mercenaries like ruffians who would come in and run the trains. And so there's this crazy scene where Blackjack Jerome carrying a uh, a bandolier of ammunition and a revolver at his hip is standing next to the president of the Denver tramway who is driving the first train out of the depot during the strike. It's 
it's absolute chaos. And as a result, not only is there more rioting, but there's also shooting that starts in the streets and you end up with half a dozen people dead uh, by the end of the week. And the mayor says, this will not do. We have to call out the army. Please send federal troops to stop this civil disorder. I I can't even like comprehend that other than like this feels very Wild West and like this, the the legends that we tell about Denver. But this is over trans. This is over public transit. Yeah, this is for public transit. And it eventually gets to the point where, you know, the police chief has to be hospitalized because a rider throws a brick at him and it hits him on the head. Like one party of strike breakers has to hide out in the cathedral downtown, which is it's still the cathedral's still there. And so how did this violence resolve? Like what what was sort of the end game here? So what happens is the mayor, uh, Mayor Bailey, who was formerly the police commissioner, sends a telegram to the army. And there's an army commander named Colonel Ballou shows up with tanks and machine guns and declares martial law. So it's August 7th. At one in the morning, federal troops with tanks and machine guns arrive in the streets of Denver, and they stay in the city for over a month. So, Jake, you just explained how this conflict over the price of a streetcar ride erupted into this violent situation with strike breakers fighting in the streets with the army and the city is put under martial law. How did this fight resolve? And then how did that lead to this point where we no longer have a streetcar? Right. So in the end, nobody wins. The The tramway company has to go and declare bankruptcy. The union gets dissolved and the leaders get thrown in jail. I think like two thirds of the striking workers get fired and the mayor loses his reelection bid. So the only guy who gets out of this well is Blackjack Jerome, who retires a millionaire from his various strike breaking efforts. And uh, he ends up being like a large real estate owner in California after all of this kerfuffle settles down. But this marks the beginning of the tramway's decline where tramway expansion stopped around 1923 or so. And after that, they start replacing streetcars with buses, partly because streetcars are not very efficient on lower capacity routes since they can't like change lanes or anything. But the other thing is that the contract between the city and the tramway required the tramway to maintain any streets that had tracks in them. So there's plenty of blame to go around. So the last trains run in 1950 and the tramway limps along as a bus company until 1971 when RTD takes over. Uh, And the reasons for replacing trains with buses are you know, on low capacity routes, it doesn't really make that much much sense to run trains. But that said, it is interesting to see that the lack of investment over time meant that people said, we don't need to fix this. In the future, everyone will just have an automobile and it doesn't matter. Um, which, of course, this is why you're stuck in traffic on I-25. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a lot for sure. So, Jake, I have to say, prior to to reading this story that you had shared initially, actually on Reddit, this the story of the the tramway uh, break, you know, this this massive fight. The picture that I've been 
sort of told about Denver streetcar system was sort of this romanticized view. And it was like, oh, it was this perfect system and it ran in our city close neighborhoods and commercial nodes uh, sprouted up all around in each neighborhood. This is why you see one block in the middle of a residential neighborhood with uh, a grocery store and a post office, like all these beautiful things that came with having a, a tramway system or a streetcar system. I feel like your story paints a little bit of a different picture. And I wonder, why do you think this like romantic idea of the streetcar persists today as like the perfect transit? My theory is that there is an enormous demand for people to live in places where you don't have to get in your car to do everything. And the most desirable neighborhoods almost anywhere in the United States are generally going to be city neighborhoods built before the Second World War, where let's say two thirds or 75% of the things you need within daily life are within a 10 minute walk. And if you think about the really expensive places in say, uh, greater Denver, like that's exactly where everyone would like to live if they could afford it, but they don't build neighborhoods like that anymore, which is a problem but it's not one that's unfixable. You just have to allow neighborhoods to be built the old way again. Interesting. So it's almost that that myth persists because um, it's what people ideally might still want. We just haven't figured out or we haven't maybe made that trade off that we need to make, which is to sort of separate ourselves from our cars. And if we say this, the streetcar idea is beautiful, let's fund it and support it. It means we also have to ride it too. Yeah. One of the things that has been a interesting thing to figure out while in Denver is so much of the modern RTD rail system is built around the idea that you will drive to the train station and then you'll take the train as opposed to bringing the train to the city, so to speak. So the last time that I was in Denver, I was visiting a friend who lives in Highlands Ranch and I flew into the airport took the train out as far as I possibly could on I-25, and he picked me up at the train station. But when I got off the train, there was nothing around there. There was nothing within a five-minute walk, which is to say they don't build them like they used to. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, too, is just to think about the actual environment that you're getting off of a train into is has to have amenities that you might need as a human, but also be a place you want to you want to be. Right. I mean, nobody wants to hang out in a parking lot. I mean, I definitely wanted to hang out in a parking lot when I was 16 and I had nothing better to do, but. Agreed. <laughs> I know. I was like, I said that. And then I was like, I actually have done a lot of hanging out in parking lots, but it's a particular time in your life. Yeah. Um, but something you just described, which I think is so such an everyday experience for Denverites is that trek from DIA to Highlands Ranch, like you might as well be in different states, right? It's so far. Yeah. And that's not uncommon, I think, when folks, I see folks really, really want to use the train. And for instance, I live in like West, West Denver, and mm -hmm. you can take the train from the airport to a certain extent, but then you still have this like mile or two to get to my house. So do you think that there's hope for Denver to get back to that beautiful romanticized idea of, of transit? Or are we... Are we like, are we a lost cause? No, I think it's actually easier to fix than you think because it's largely a function of what you build near the train stations now. 
Because now that Denver has these spines of high capacity transit in the light rail and the commuter rail systems, these spines already exist. And there's enough mileage that it's comparable with a European city of the same size. The difference is European cities put stuff near their train stations in a way that they don't in Denver. And conveniently, there's tons of parking and strip malls that you could replace with housing and um, more walkable places to shop or worship or go to school. This can all be done. It just requires doing things the way that they used to. Interesting. So work with what we have. Yeah, like there's been a really excellent amount of transit built. It's just that now you have to bring the city to the transit, so to speak. I'm also thinking about um, we have we have a pretty good listenership of folks who are very in, involved and interested in public transit. Mm-hmm. But I'm also thinking about an occasional listener who goes, before hearing this story from you, I never thought twice about riding the bus or being a train rider. What what sort of lesson do you hope someone who's who's newer to this conversation about transit takes from this story of Denver? What I think people what well what I hope people take away from this is that this idea of you have to get in your car from everything, this was not handed down on Mount Sinai, right? Like there's no stone tablets with Moses coming down saying like thou shalt have two parking spaces and a long driveway <laughs> and a quarter acre lot. Like that people Like, these were the decisions that people made back in the day, and it might have made sense at the time. But you can also do things the old way, but you have to actually allow things to be built that way if you want something like that. Um, You know, everyone has a friend who says, yeah, like, man, I really wish uh, that I could get in shape, but the guy never hits the gym, right? Like, well, if you don't (laughs) change the things that you need to change, you're never going to get the things that you want. You're never going to change. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, Jake Berman, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. The big idea Jake just laid out about reforming the way we build neighborhoods is, of course, almost the exact same thing our governor, Jared Polis, has been pushing for for the last two years. He got tons of pushback from various smaller cities and especially mountain towns last session. But this year, he's got a new approach. It looks like he's splitting up what was a single sweeping zoning reform into a series of smaller bills that would do things like eliminate minimum parking requirements or incentivize housing construction around transit stops. So it's going to be a bunch of small fights instead of one big one. And we'll be watching just the same. We'll let you know more when we do. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed this show, why not take a minute to tell your friends you used to hang out with in the Denny's parking lot about us. Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later. Tell the person next to you on the bus that doesn't want to talk to you because they have their headphones in about our show. I'm just kidding. Bother the people.